right, good evening, good evening. I'm going to go without the microphone again. I guess no one had a problem hearing me this morning. So uh, if I talk loud without the microphone, it'll keep me awake up here. So we'll try that strategy again. I want you to turn to your Bibles tonight to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. We're going to be looking at chapter 42 for a few minutes. This morning, what I intended to do was set the stage for this week as we talk about biblical principles regarding revival and awakening. Revival is something that the churches of Jesus Christ desperately need in these dark days, and spiritual awakening is something that our society desperately needs. People are perishing in a devil's hell every day and need Jesus Christ. But before we can proceed in understanding or seeking revival, we have to understand the last day's context in which we live. God has a plan and purpose for the ages that was set from the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ and His salvation, our salvation as Christians, was determined from the foundation of the world. And even back in the Garden of Eden, in the very first few chapters, when man and woman sinned against God and God pronounced judgment on creation, the curse of sin coming into what God had made, the very first gospel appeared. When God told the serpent that the seed of the woman would crush his head. That proto-evangelium, that first gospel. So all of this was ordained from the foundation of the world. God's plans and purposes for Israel. His plans and purposes for the church. The consummation of all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ in His millennial kingdom. These things have been written They've been written down. And when God says He's going to do something, He does it. So there's a plan. And part of that plan is a great falling away and apostasy that will take place in the last days that can only be remedied when Christ Jesus comes for His church and then seven years later He returns to earth and sets up a kingdom to rule and reign in righteousness, putting down the false Messiah Antichrist and His false prophet and judging the world in righteousness. So all of these things have been ordained and the last day's apostasy that we're living in now is God's plan and purpose to be glorified through Jesus Christ. So we have to understand these things. These things don't change. They've been purposed from all eternity. So as we seek revival and as we seek to grow in our relationship with the Lord and to be faithful to Him, we have to do it within this context of last day's apostasy. We have to understand where we are and where things are going. They're not getting better. They're down spiraling. It's just like the days of the book of Judges. There was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Well, there is no God in America these days and every man does that which is right in his own eyes. It's a down spiral that can only get worse. Notwithstanding, God has given us His Holy Spirit and the tools whereby we can endure and shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So I, I spoke this morning about this context of last day's apostasy. I think that's the context in which we must seek revival. And then I want to talk the remainder of the week about principles of revival as I believe are taught in the Scriptures. The first one I mentioned this morning, you can't have revival in your heart unless you've been born again. If you're lost and without Jesus Christ, if you're trusting in your church attendance, or you're trusting in your good works, or you're trusting in the fact that your mother and father were Christians, you can't have revival. 
Revival happens in the hearts of those that have been born again but have become cold, worldly, and ineffective. We need to be revived. Revive us, O Lord. Those old hymns about revival are talking about believers that need to be revived. You can't have revival without being born again. You need awakening, spiritual awakening, before you can have spiritual revival. The second principle that we're going to talk about this week is that revival cannot be organized. It cannot be planned. It's something that comes from God. Thirdly, revival, historically speaking, which we've seen examples of this throughout history. I talked about the Great Awakenings in America this morning. Revival is always preceded or always begins with repentance. It begins with acknowledging sin in the life of the believer, in the life of the church, repenting of it and making it right. Apart from repentance, there is no revival. It's never been that way historically. The first great awakening that started in places like Enfield, Connecticut with Jonathan Edwards and his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, began when people fell out in the aisles unto repentance. And then finally, revival always affects non-believers. It always results in spiritual awakening. Why? Because revived believers always endeavor to obey their Lord's last and greatest commission, which is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Every single one of those great awakenings that we see in history resulted in intense, zealous missionary activity and people coming to Christ and the gospel going forth into the streets and the highways and byways. So you can't have revival unless you've been born again. Revival can't be organized. So I can't bring it to you this week. I can't plan it. I can't make a little schedule to determine when it's going to come. That's what God does. Revival begins with repentance. If there's sin in your life and sin in this church, it needs to be repented of. In many cases, it needs to be repented of publicly. And then revival always results in the Great Commission being carried out. And so if you're not interested in sharing the Gospel with the lost, you won't find revival because that's the fruit of revival. Those are some things I want to talk about this week in more detail. But before we do that, I want to continue the theme from this morning. We've talked about last day's apostasy. It's a reality. And we are experiencing that today. It's here in America and around the world. People turning away from biblical doctrine and turning unto error, lies, and deceit. And it's my belief that the pillar of last day's apostasy is man-centered ministry. That's the problem with the church today. Man-centered ministry. It's a man-centered salvation that's preached. Come to Jesus. He'll make everything okay. He'll give you everything you need. Man-centered. Ministry. Man-centered. We've got to please people. We've got to keep them happy. We're looking for CEOs instead of pastors. Man-centered ministry. That is the problem with the church today. And it's why apostasy is so rampant. I want you to, we're going to look in Jeremiah tonight because as we saw in the book of Hosea this morning, what happened in the life of Israel is mirrored today in America in the lives of the churches. The Bible says in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 10 that the Old Testament, these stories and these narratives were given for our learning so that we could look and see and study human nature. So that we could be admonished 
against making these same mistakes. And so that's why we study the Old Testament. The Old Testament's not some old covenant that has no bearing anymore. People talk about the old God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. No, it's the same God. And the same Gospel that is revealed in the New Testament was proclaimed and prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is enclosed in the Old Testament and He's exposed in the New Testament. It's all there. It's the same God. The Old Testament saint was saved by faith just like the New Testament saint. The Old Testament saint looked forward to a promise that would one day occur. We look backward in faith to a promise that did fulfill itself. The only difference in terms of salvation and being right with God was a perspective of time. And salvation and being right with God has always been by faith. It's never been by works. The law was never given to make man righteous. It was given so that we would see our sin and understand our need for a Savior. When Brother Ricky and myself endeavor to share the Gospel with Israelis, we don't use the name Jesus. We use the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. We often go to the Old Testament to preach the Gospel because these are the books that they, were, that they grew up on. This is the culture that they understand. But the Gospel is just as clear in their Old Testament Tanakh as it is in my New Testament, Barit Chadashah, New Testament in Hebrew. It's the same. And so we often find ourselves going back to some of these stories in the Old Testament to reveal that Jesus was the Messiah. And this same Jesus who was crucified is coming again to set up a kingdom and that kingdom will have as its center Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And it's very interesting we find that many young Israelis have never heard any of this. Never heard any of it. I find it very uh, interesting how we'll run into Israelis in the strangest of places. And there's an area in Kathmandu called Tamel. It became famous in the 60s and 70s as a place to go and smoke marijuana and get high and endeavor, engage in all sorts of wickedness. And it's kind of a, got a hippie flavor to it. We often go down there to preach because there's a lot of foreigners and Westerners traveling around down there. And um, There's an Israeli uh, Kabad house down there. The Kabad is where the rabbis set up synagogues around the world to kind of guard or watch over Israelis or Jewish people that are traveling through there to make sure they have a place where they can have a Sabbath meal, to make sure they have a place where they can go through the ritual. And the Chabad... Uh, rabbis absolutely hate Christian missionaries that reach out to the Israeli folks. But we would often go down in that area in Kathmandu because that's where you would find Israeli travelers. And usually when we walk up to share the gospel with someone from Israel, they're, they're, they're easy to spot. Usually the only people that we mistakenly think are from Israel are, are, are people from France. I don't know why. About three or four times on this journey, I approached someone thinking they were from Israel only to discover they were French. So I don't, I don't know what the connection was, but it was always somebody from France if it wasn't someone from Israel. But we'll often walk around and if somebody looks like they're from Israel, as we pass by, I might say shalom, which means peace. It's a greeting. And if they're from Israel, they will answer. And if they answer, it gives us a quick inroad to introduce ourselves and express our love for Israel and why we love Israel and to share with them Jesus the Messiah. So the conversation will often go a little something like this. Oh, you guys are from Israel. Well, yeah. Well, where in Israel? And they'll tell me or whatever. And 
Usually, Ricky or myself will say something like, well, I just want you to know what an honor it is for us to meet you. And then they'll have a strange look on their face, and I'll go on to say, you know, I know many people around this world hate you and hate your country and want to see your destruction, but I want you to know that there are those of us in America that honestly do pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and we honestly do support you, and we honestly are thankful for you. And then you have a strange quizzical look come over their face and like, wow, I've never heard anything like that. And Usually I'll say something like, you know, I'm thankful for you and your people because God used your people, the Jewish people, to give His Word to mankind. So that all of us Gentiles, all of us Goyim is what they call us, could have knowledge of the true God, which is the God of Israel, and knowledge of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. And usually it's like, wow, I appreciate that. And every single time we had this conversation on this last journey overseas, the person took a gospel message. And sometimes we're able to give out the New Testament in Hebrew. But it's always fun to pull these stories out of the Old Testament because they reveal the gospel. It's not Old Testament versus New Testament. We need to be studying the Old Testament a little bit more. Maybe we wouldn't make the same foolish mistakes that Israel made centuries ago that we see happening today. But let's, look, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 42. And I want to set the context a bit before we actually read a few passages because I believe what we see here in chapter 42 is a carbon copy of the heart attitude that exists with many so-called Christians in the church today. What we saw in Hosea this morning was a mirror image of American society. A society in which... There is no knowledge and people perish. What we're going to see tonight is a mirror image of the heart attitude that unfortunately is with many people that claim the name of Christ. And we must flee these things if we are to find revival. But starting in chapter 37, um, Jeremiah has been prophesying and his prophecy and his warning to the people of Jerusalem is that the king of Babylon is coming. And the Babylonian army is going to overthrow this city of Jerusalem. God's judgment is here. It's not going to turn back. His judgment's coming. And the city is going to be burnt with fire. You need to repent. There is no escape. In chapter 37, in fact, Jeremiah says this from the word of the Lord, even if you were to defeat the entire army of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, he's telling this to the people of Jerusalem, even if they were defeated and the only ones that remained, remained were wounded soldiers, yet still they would rise up and burn this city with fire. There is no escaping God's judgment. So Jeremiah prophesied these things and he preached with boldness and then he endeavored to leave the city of Jerusalem um, and go off into the countryside while God's judgment came. His job was finished. But as he was leaving the city, he was caught by some of the men and some of the leaders of the city who accused him of falling away to the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They accused him of being a traitor. They took him and they threw him in a dungeon. And once he was thrown in the dungeon, the king of, of Judah, the last king, King Zedekiah, Zedekiah was put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar himself as a, as a, um, a vassal king after uh, uh, Jehoiachin was removed from leadership. Zedekiah did not follow the Lord. 
He was king for 11 years until the city was sacked in 586 B.C. But Zedekiah the king, after Jeremiah was cast into a dungeon, secretly came to him because he knew there was truth in what was being spoken. And he asked Jeremiah secretly, Is there any word from the Lord that I need to hear? Jeremiah responded very bluntly, you will be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. So in other words, you've got this king coming and asking, is there any word from the Lord? And the prophet of God remained true and told him the truth. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't try to kiss up to him. He didn't try to appease him. He said, you will be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. And then as a result of that boldness, the king allowed Jeremiah to come out of the dungeon and allowed him to stay in the king's court and to receive. And was, he, was, he ordered Jeremiah to be fed a piece of bread every day out of the baker's secret stash until all the bread was gone. And Jeremiah was taken out of the dungeon and put in the court. Then we get into chapter 38. And then some of the men and some of the elders of the city despise this prophet because he's warning them about their sin. He's warning them about God's coming judgment and He's urging them to repent. So these men gather together and they go to the king and they say, you've got to do something about this man. His preaching is weakening the hands of our soldiers. His preaching is not for the welfare of our people, but for the hurt of our people. You've got to do something about this. So the king said, okay, whatever. You guys take care of it. So they took Jeremiah and they threw him into another dungeon. This one was a miry pit full of mud. There was no water. And they lowered him into this dungeon and it says that he sank in the mire. He sank in the mire. And he spent time in this dungeon. There was an Ethiopian eunuch who labored in the court of the king that felt sorry for the prophet. Okay, And he went to the king and said, this man has done no evil. What you have allowed to happen to him is wicked and you need to bring him out. He's done nothing wrong. And so then the king turned around and honored this request and they pulled Jeremiah up out of the, out of the, the miry clay, out of the pit, restored him back to the court of the prison. And then again, this wicked king came to the prophet and said, what is it that is from the Lord? What does the Lord have to say? And the prophet said this, if you will go forth, and I'm in chapter 38 just summarizing here. If you will go forth to the king of Babylon and his princes, then you will live. And this city shall not be burned with fire. You shall live in your house. In other words, go out to the king of Babylon and surrender. Because this judgment is from me. <coughs> and if you do these things, you will live. And your house will survive and endure. But then as you read on, you learn that the king is afraid. He's afraid of his own people. I am afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me and mock me if I do this. And then Jeremiah says, I, I beseech you to obey the voice of the Lord. If you'll obey and surrender yourself, you will live. And the city will be spared. So all of these things happened, and uh, Jeremiah uh, uh, was, was, was allowed to continue in the, the court of the prison. And the king was told what he needed to do. And then as we get into chapter 39, the king never did. He never would surrender himself as the prophet had adjured him to do. In fact, he was so afraid of what his fellow Jews might think that he held on to the notion that maybe we can defeat this army. As you get into th chapter 39, you see that Nebuchadnezzar's armies come. 
They had besieged the city before, and then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, brought up an army, and then the Babylonians left Jerusalem for a time. That's when the people thought they were safe, and the false prophets declared that God's judgment was not coming, everything is okay. But Pharaoh's army was defeated, and the Babylonians came back. And it tells us from, from the ninth into the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the city was under siege. It was under siege for about a year and a half. And then finally, in the eleventh year of the king, in the fourth month of the ninth day, the city was overrun. This was 586 B.C. Babylon invaded and, and, and overthrew the city of Jerusalem. It was burned with fire. The temple built by Solomon was destroyed and Israel was carried into captivity into Babylon. This began what is called the times of the Gentiles, when Jerusalem would be trodden underfoot. And this happened as Jeremiah was there, and the prophecies and the warnings he gave came true before his eyes. And so, the king was taken captive as he tried to escape, King Zedekiah, and he was captured and brought before Nebuchadnezzar, the king had refused to do what the Lord told him to do. So as a result, the last thing on this earth that he saw with his eyes was the murder of his family. Nebuchadnezzar had his family and his sons slain before his eyes, and then Zedekiah's eyes were put out. They were gouged out, just like Samson's, so that the last thing he saw was the murder of his family. And then he was carried away captive to Babylon. The city was overthrown, and the judgment that God proclaimed came to pass. Now, Nebuchadnezzar the king then, in turn, told his princes to spare Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was freed. And he was told that he could either go back to Babylon or he could stay in the land and settle wherever he wanted to go. So God honored the prophet and spared him from the judgment. The Ethiopian eunuch that helped the prophet was spared from judgment and was blessed by God. And so all of these things are happened. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar appointed a governor Gedaliah to rule over the remnant of Judah, the poor of the land were allowed to stay. They were given possession of whatever remained and to settle the land and to continue to live. And Nebuchadnezzar set up his own governor. And then as we get into chapters 40 and 41, we see life in Judah after the destruction at the hands of the Babylonian army. And what you saw is you saw some of the, Israel, uh, the Jewish generals who were in the field began to come back home when they learned that their capital had been destroyed. And they came back home and they encountered this governor that had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. And as they came back, there were conspiracies and various things that took place. One Jewish leader that came up out of, uh, out of uh, the land of Ammon conspired and killed this governor that was put in place by Nebuchadnezzar. Some of the other Jewish generals had warned him that this man was a traitor and he refused to listen and sure enough, this man was a traitor and killed him. We learn these things in chapter 40 and 41. And as a result of this conspiracy, the Jews became very afraid that when Nebuchadnezzar finds out about this treason, he's going to kill all of us. And so some of the remnant that remained, some of the generals that had been in the field that came back to find their capital destroyed were in fear. They were in fear that there would be retaliation for this conspiracy against the king of Babylon's appointed governor. And as a result of this fear, their discernment was clouded. And that's what brings us to chapter 42. In chapter 42, these men come to Jeremiah and they ask him, what should we do? Chapter 42, I'll begin with verse 1. 
Then all the captains of the forces, these are those generals that had been in the field, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshaiah, and all the people from the least even unto the greatest came near. This was the remnant left behind in the land. And they said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee our supplication be accepted before thee, and pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us. That the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk, and the thing that we may do. Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you. Behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I will declare it unto you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, The Lord be a faithful, a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all the things for which the Lord thy God shall send thee to us, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send thee, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. And it came to pass after ten days that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah. So these people who were in fear came to the prophet and said, Ask the Lord for us, and whatever He tells us to do, we will do. And so Jeremiah sought the Lord for ten days, and then the Word of God came. What was the Word of God? If you go down to verse 9, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication, If you will remain or still abide in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. And I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. But be not afraid of the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercies that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say we will not dwell in this land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, say no, but we will go down into the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there we will dwell. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter into Egypt, to go and sojourn there, then it shall come to pass that the sword which you have feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt, and the famine whereof you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So in other words, the word from God was, look, you need to stay here in the land of Judah. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon. Even though this conspiracy has taken place and his governor has been murdered, you need not be afraid. I will spare you from him. Do not go back to Egypt. The Lord delivered His people from Egypt in the days of Moses. It was never His intention for them to go back. And so there was this thought amongst the people, if we go back to Egypt and we go back to Pharaoh we will find safety and protection. And so the prophet was warning them, don't even entertain that thought. Do not go back to Egypt. If you leave this country that I promised to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you return from where I called you out, the fear that you fear here will find you there. So the Word of God was clear. We want to know what God wants us to do. Tell us, prophet. What is God's Word? The prophet gave God's Word. Very clear. Stay here, trust me, don't go back to Egypt. 
And then as you go on and continue to read the chapter, God warns them of the things that will happen. Go not into Egypt, verse 19. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. And then look at verse 20. For you have dissembled in your hearts when you sent me unto the Lord your God, saying, Pray for us according unto the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord our God shall say. So declare unto us, and we will do it. And now I have this day declared it unto you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything for the which He hath sent me unto you. So God gave the prophet the discernment to know that these people really didn't want to do what God wanted them to do. With their mouth, they said, tell us the way of the Lord we will follow. But with their hearts, they had already made up their mind. And so the prophet rebukes them. You've already disassembled in your hearts. I know what you want to do. And I've warned you. But you're not going to obey. And then as you go on to read chapters 43 and 44, you will see that the people do not obey. They decide to go down to Egypt. They take Jeremiah, they take Baruch the scribe, and they carry them captive down to Egypt. And they decide to return to where God had called out His people. And they decided to continue worshiping the Queen of Heaven and the pagan deities that they thought had brought them safety. And they wholly turned away from the Lord God. And as a result, what God warned came to pass. God promised that once they went into Egypt, they would not return. And that His blessing would never again be upon them. So what we have here in chapter 42 is a people that come to the prophet and honor God with their mouth, but their hearts are far from Him. That's the problem with the churches of America today. We honor God with our mouth. We know the spiritual language. We know how to go through the motions. We know how to play church. We know how to make the preacher think that we really want to know the Word of the Lord. But when the Word of the Lord comes, when the Word of the Lord is very clear, we won't follow it. These people were given the Word of the Lord and they chose not to follow it. You see, when they came to God, when they came to the prophet asking for the Word of the Lord, they had already made up in their mind what they were going to do. So if we're coming to God seeking revival, seeking to know His will, and wanting to obey Him, but yet in our hearts, we've already decided the way we're going to go. We're just wasting our time here tonight. We're just wasting our time here this week. You'd be better off at home just watching the, basket, the Carolina basketball game that I think is happening right now. Or Duke or whoever might be playing. You'd be better off just doing that if you've already made up in your mind what you're going to do. We had a situation recently where we dealt with, not going to go into much detail, where we dealt with someone who claimed to be seeking the will of the Lord. And they had already decided in their mind that there was a path they wanted to take. And a point came where they claimed that God had told them to take this path. And what resulted was not the fruit of righteousness. What resulted from this choice was confusion. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion, so you know it's not of God. It resulted in genuine Bible-believing Christians being hurt. And it resulted in a failed commitment. You know, the Bible says when a righteous man gives his word and swears to his own hurt, he still doesn't change. It amazes me today that people think it's not important to keep one's word. Especially someone that calls himself a Christian. They don't think it's important 
to honor a commitment. And oftentimes, they'll use God as their crutch to justify a failed commitment. Well, God told me to do this. No, my friends, God would never lead us to do something that goes against the clear teaching of His Word. I don't care if you saw a white light in the night. Somebody claims to have seen a white light, that's a red flag anyway. If they claim God spoke something to them that leads confusion, especially when it's in a place of extreme demonic activity, <coughs> there's reason to question. But people are able to justify their deeds as the will of God because when they came to God seeking His will, they had already made up their own mind. And their God really isn't the God of the Bible. It's their own belly, as, the, as, as Paul says in the book of Romans. Are we this type of people? Are we just like these Jews here? Have we already decided in our heart what we're going to do and what we're not going to do? And we're just going through a formality when we come to the Lord seeking His will. I pray not. Because God, unlike the prophets of old, unlike the people of old who didn't have the complete revelation of God contained in the Old and New Testaments, we have the will of God right here. Believe it or not, my friends, when it comes to the Christian life, when it comes for truth to truth, when it comes to the nature and exclusivity of the Gospel, there are some things we don't even need to pray about because the answer is clear. Should I pray about whether or not I should honor a commitment I made to the Lord? No way! If you made a commitment to the Lord, honor it. Should I pray about whether or not I should share the Gospel? Well, maybe in specific circumstances, we need wisdom from the Lord about how we should bridge to the Gospel, what we should say and what we shouldn't say. But as far as whether or not to share the Gospel with the lost, we don't need to pray about that. God commanded us to do that. When it comes to loving our brethren and caring for the needs of the body of Christ, do we need to pray about that? Well, maybe about specifics and how to minister to a specific need. Or how, whether or not a need uh, is best met in one way or another, absolutely. But when it comes to loving the brethren, these are things that are the will of God. And we don't even need to pray about it. Sometimes when we pray about something, we're praying about it not because we want to know what God's will is, but we want to justify what we've already dissembled in our hearts. And if we pray, quote-unquote, pray long enough and hard enough, we can convince ourselves that God is telling us to do something that He's really not telling us to do. And that's a problem in the church today. That's why there's not genuine revival. That's why there's not genuine awakening. That's why churches are dying. That's why so-called respectable pastors are falling away to the world left and right and compromising left and right because people have already made up their mind what they're going to do. We don't come to the Word of God to be taught. We come to the Word of God to justify our own lust and pleasures. That's a heart problem. That's an attitude problem. And that's where we need to repent. Maybe we just need to start over. Maybe when you come to the Word of God in the morning, you just need to start over. Maybe we need to stop talking to God in prayer. Maybe we need to start just listening. How do we listen? We listen by reading the Word. When I read these passages here, in fact, my mom was just talking about this the other day in Nepal. She came to visit me along with my 83-year-old grandmother. It was an amazing time. My grandmother was a real good sport in some very difficult situations. And I was so happy that she was able to come and see the work that's going on that her and my grandfather before he died had supported for so long. But we were talking about these passages. And it just amazes me that the attitude of the Jews here, those that were supposed to know God, that had seen His judgment fall, 
that had the prophets, that had the writings of Moses, they should have known better. They should have known that it was wrong to go back to Egypt right where they had started, but had already decided to do so anyway. And so, the book of Titus talks about those that honor God with their mouths, with their words, but their hearts are far from Him. They profess that they know God with their mouth, but in their works they deny Him. Jesus Himself in the Gospel rebuked the Pharisees. You are those which honor God with your mouth, but your heart is far from Him. Are we those Christians that pay lip service to God, but our hearts are far from Him? We must examine ourselves. And if so, we must repent. We must be willing to obey the will of God, even if it means persecution, even if it means imprisonment, even if it means death. And my friends, there are believers around this world today that are willing to make those sacrifices and have not compromised and will not compromise. I've had the great privilege of worshiping, of teaching persecuted brethren who are hungry to know the Word of God. Hungry to know it. In fact, I was able to teach with the body of believers a few weeks ago about how to handle persecution. And I'm asking myself, why in the world am I here teaching these people? These people who have been delivered from demons. These people who have built a church despite terrible persecution. It needs to be me sitting in the floor. It needs to be me sitting on the dirt floor. Them behind the pulpit teaching me. It's a very humbling experience, but we talked about why we need not fear. We talked about how the enemies of the cross have no power unless it's given from God above. And if it's given from God above as it was in the book of Job, it's given for our good. And we can rest in those promises. It was a great privilege to teach those that came wanting simply to know what the Word of God said so they could obey it, no matter how difficult. But we're not that type of people. We don't come because we truly want to know what God's will is. We come because we want to feel comfortable. We want to justify what we know is wrong because we're convicted in our hearts. And that's why you go around this country today and most of the sermons you hear anymore are little ditties about hoping and coping. Sermonettes for Christianettes. And there are very few who will preach the Word of God even when it's uncomfortable. It's a sad state of affairs. Our society in America is much like what I read from Hosea today. And the hearts of most professing believers in this country are just like the Jews here in Jeremiah chapter 42. They claim they want to know God's will, but yet have already decided the way they're going to do it. I can't believe we live in a society where we're actually discussing in our churches whether certain things are okay or not. We're actually, discuss- we're actually having a discussion. Pastors and respected leaders are discussing whether or not certain immoralities can be justified or right or wrong. Is that where we've come in this country? Why? Because we've already disassembled in our hearts. And we've already decided what we want to do. And we can talk, 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 talk and finally convince ourselves that it's okay. But God's Word still stands. His Word is still truth. And the Lord God doesn't change. In fact, God told the people of Israel in the book of Malachi, long after these events, I, the Lord God, change not. And because I change not, you people aren't totally consumed. Because God made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And it was because he's faithful and doesn't change that he didn't just wipe Israel off the map completely. That's why God hasn't destroyed the church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is faithful. He doesn't change. For that reason, we still live and breathe and the church still exists. But judgment is coming. And if we want revival, if we want to be used of the Lord in these dark days, we cannot be those that disassemble in our hearts. We must be those that come truly seeking the Word of the Lord. And when it's given, when it's proclaimed, we need to do what it says. The Bible commands us to go into the world and preach the Gospel to every creature. The Bible commands us in the church of God to love one another and love the brethren. What gets me so angry in Christian ministry and missions today is when people go out of their way to appease the lost, but yet have no love for their brethren. I'll never understand that. I'll never understand the self-righteous missionary who hates the fact that we would give out tracts, who hates the fact that we would preach on the street, that accuses us of doing things that are going to get everybody kicked out in Nepal or whatever, and yet will go out of their way. Never a positive word for the preacher, but will go out of their way to buddy up with Buddhist monks and Muslim teachers and Hindu priests and to buddy up with all these people and yet despise their brethren. That's backwards. Yes, we should love the lost, love them enough to tell them the truth, but the love Jesus Christ called us to, the new commandment, was love for one another, the brethren. How can you even understand love for the lost if you don't love one another? How can you love Jesus Christ and despise His bride? We're called to love one another in this church, to support one another. And when the persecution comes, if we run away in fear and don't stand by our brethren, then shame on us. Brethren around the world that suffer persecution, when one goes down, they all stick together. Here in America, people will tuck tail and run. And your brother or sister in Christ will be the first to turn you into a government if they think you're a risk to their safety and security. That's where we live today. Because we're just like these people in the book of Jeremiah. You see, the primary pillar of end times apostasy in the church is man-centered ministry. And right here was man-centeredness. We're going to do what we think benefits us despite what God has declared. Elsewhere, the Scriptures call this the way of Cain. The error of Balaam. The gainsaying of Korah. These were all men in the New Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament. Their downfall was their man-centeredness. Cain was a farmer. He was a tiller of the ground. God required a blood sacrifice to cover sin. That was demonstrated when he slew two animals and gave Adam and Eve coats of skin. Abel understood this and he brought a blood sacrifice to the altar that was probably right there at the gate to the Garden of Eden where the cherubim stood guard. Abel understood God required a blood sacrifice. But Cain thought he could come to God on his own terms. Why should I have to go to my brother and purchase or trade for a lamb and offer a blood sacrifice? I'll just bring God the fruit of my labor. He ought to be satisfied with that. I'll just do it my way. I'll come to God on my terms. And we know the story. We know the end of that. God didn't accept Cain's offering because you don't come to God on your own terms. You come to God on His terms. God's terms are not a great lovey-dovey ecumenical circle where everybody's just following one path to a God that sits on a mountaintop with many pathways leading to Him. 
No, God's terms are Jesus the Christ. There is no other way to heaven. There is no other way to be right with God. Without Christ, there is no relationship with God. You know, the Muslim can claim to follow God. He uses the word Allah, which is the Arabic word for God. He claims to follow God, but his God is not God. In fact, I believe, you know, there are Christian missionaries that often talk about contextualizing the gospel for Muslims, and they talk about how Muslims and Christians and Jews were all cousins, and, you know, we can use the Quran to talk about Jesus. We don't need the Bible and all this other garbage. The Quran's not from God, number one. Yes, there may be things in the Quran that bridge to the gospel, but it is no substitute for the Word of God. It's no substitute. But I find that the religion of Islam has more in common with American atheism than it does with biblical Christianity. You see, in America, the American atheist is a religious person. He may claim not to be irreligious or a-religious, but he's a religious person and he has a God that he worships. His God is man. The God of the American atheist or the God of American society really is mankind. That's the pinnacle of all things. That's what the atheist worships. Well, the Islamist is the same. The Mohammedan worships not God. He worships a man. And his God is not the Creator. It's a man named Muhammad. That's why back in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, when the English and the, and, and the European explorers traded and had encounters with the Muslims, they weren't called Muslims. They weren't called uh, uh, followers of Islam. They were called Mohammedans. Because the Mohammedans' God is a dead man named Muhammad. He worships a man. That's why the blasphemy laws in places like Pakistan is not for blaspheming God, it's for speaking against the prophet. If you speak against the prophet, you're worthy of death. There are places that we went in, in Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country, to preach just a few weeks ago with the team, and we often joked about, hey, we had some young guys with us that are kind of new in the faith but have a desire to serve the Lord, and we would joke around about, okay, we're going to pull up here right beside this mosque, and I want you to get out and preach a message to these people as they're coming out. And the first thing I want you to say is that Muhammad the prophet is dead. And then you just preach whatever you want, whatever the Lord lays on your heart. We would joke around about him because if this person were to get out of the van and say that, we'd all be dead within a few minutes. They'd kill us. But uh, the God of the Muslim is not God. It's a man. The God of the American atheist, the God of many people that sit in church on Sunday mornings, is not God. It's man. It's man. Man-centered. Man-centered ministry is the way of Cain. And we must flee these things if we want to see revival in our lives and in our churches. Today, man-centered churchianity sees attendance, income, as the ultimate goals of the church. Attendance and income. Should that be our goals? Churches look for CEOs instead of uncompromising men of God to lead them. Churches seek to entertain rather than to enlighten. They endeavor to excite people instead of rebuking them for sin. To please instead of correct. To gain support rather than producing Bible-believing disciples and planting Bible-believing churches. Man-centered ministry. The heart attitude that we see right here in Jeremiah chapter 42 Worldly philosophy, tradition, and preference are exalted over Scripture when the Bible tells us to beware of these things. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. To beware of worldly philosophies that distract from Christ 
and follow the rudiments of this world. All of these complex strategies and ministry platforms and programs we see in the church with regard to outreach and, and missions and all of these things, when the Bible speaks of ministry as simple, the Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4 to beware lest we be turned away from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. Do you not understand that the church really is simple? God organized it simply. There are two offices in the church. That of the pastor, elder, bishop. It's an interchangeable term. And that of the deacon or the servant. Every believer is a priest. There is no clergy versus laity in the church of God. All believers have been given the responsibility to share the gospel, to encourage one another. They're encouraged to, to, to um, um, teach one another. The women of the church are given the great responsibility of encouraging and exalting one another and bringing up the children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It really is quite simple. The ministry that God has called us to is not to go out and win souls. We can't win souls. Only Jesus Christ can do that. We're just called to be ambassadors. An ambassador is to go and proclaim. We've been given all the tools necessary to go and pro proclaim the Word of God and to carry it to the ends of the earth. It really is quite simple. Why does it have to become so complex? Why do we need these huge budgets and these complicated platforms to do what Christ has called us to do? When He sent His disciples out in the Gospels, He told them only to take enough to wear for that day. Don't even take two stabs. Don't even take extra this or extra that. I will provide for what you need. It's been a great privilege for us as we travel around the world to just go out simply. When we leave this country, we don't have the funds necessarily to make that trip. We go out in faith, and if God has called us and provided for us to get over there, we'll worry about how to get home when the time comes. We left Brother Ricky in Kathmandu the other day. His ministry is quite simple. To preach the gospel to the Israelis, and to do it however he can do it. To reach out to some of the Tibetans in the refugee camps, because the person we had appointed to do that is no longer over there. They quit and went home. So the brother has a difficult job to do, but it really is quite simple. We don't, he doesn't have, he's not over there because he's got a budget that's going to be necessarily met every year and everything he needs has been provided for. He's over there in faith. I was able to pay his rent for this month a couple days ago. We're worried about next month when the time comes. But we don't have to worry about those things. It's quite simple. Because God sins, he never guides, he never sins without providing. Why has it got to be so complicated? Everything's quantity over quality in the churches today. Leaning on fallible men instead of the infallible Bible. That's why there are men of God who have gained respect and gained a following, and then when they sin, or they begin to teach things that veer from the truth, people will still follow them. Because they're trusting the man, not in God. Nobody has the courage or the guts to rebuke those that have veered from the faith. The Bible says in Psalm 118, it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in a man. We've forgotten these things. The churches try to adjust their doctrine to agree with the times. There's no place for that in the body of Jesus Christ. There's no place for that. God doesn't change. Certain leaders are immune from accountability and those that question their unscriptural doctrines are condemned. Experience has become the measuring stick for truth. If it feels good, do it, is what the world taught us in the 60s and 70s. And what the church teaches us today, if it feels good, it's the will of God. 
If you get that warm, fuzzy feeling when you're praying about something, God's telling you to do it, regardless of whether it agrees with the Word of God or not. Experience is the measuring stick for truth, not the perfect, preserved Word of the living God. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 26, He that trusts in his own heart is a fool. The world tells us to listen to our heart. Hey, the preachers are preaching that nonsense. But the Bible says that's foolish. Experience has become our measuring stick. We see this in all sorts of things. Women in ministry positions that God didn't uh, intend for them to be. Fellowship with false teachers. Divorce and remarriage in the church and the teaching regarding that. Yoking with the lost in close relationships. Debt. All of these things that have consumed our lives. (coughs) Yes, people fall into sin. Yes, there is grace. Yes, there is forgiveness. Yes, God can restore But how dare we teach and accept these things as right and don't at least try to take a stand to prevent others from making the same mistakes we have made. Worldliness. Worldliness. When the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. The church today, man-centered ministry, says let's be a friend of the world so we can get them in the doors. That was never, ever New Testament. It was never, ever a New Testament strategy for the first believers to try to get people to come to church. That was never their job. You never once see that in the book of Acts. People going out and trying to get people to come to church. What they did was preach the gospel. And those that were saved, they came together and discipled one another, exhorted one another, learned from one another, loved one another, had things in common, and then the Bible says God added unto the church. Today we think we got to go out and get them in here. We think that evangelism is inviting someone to church. And as a result, our attention is to go out and get more people in the church so the offering plate will become a little fuller and then the preacher can uh, pat his pockets, so forth and so on. That's not New Testament. What we ought to be doing is focusing on those that God has added to this body. Discipling them, ministering to them. And God will add to the church such as He sees fit. It may not be God's will for these seats to be full in this church. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that right now as I preach. Are you okay with that? That may not be God's will. That's fine. What is God's will is for the body of Christ to grow together and be conformed to the image of Christ they've been declared to have by justification, by grace through faith. But everything is so backwards. End times apostasy, man-centered ministry, a heart attitude that's just like these Jewish people here in the book of Jeremiah. And in this context, widespread revival will not happen. It just won't. Because the church has already made up its mind. It's not interested in revival. It can say so with the mouth, but the actions tell a far different story. I had a situation recently where someone I dealt with personally, a long-term friend, made a knee-jerk decision and caused a lot of hurt. And they wanted me to believe that what they chose to do was what God told them to do. And had all the right words. Had all the spiritual lingo. Had all the outward signs that they were a person of fervent prayer and had sought the Lord. Yet, the actions denied all of that. The actions and the way a decision was handled, in my opinion trumped all of that. It revealed what the truth was. And it saddened me to see this person received as a hero 
by those that should have known better, when they should have been rebuked and encouraged to repent. That's the place we are at today in the church. It's sad. Our actions speak far louder than words. In this context of man-centered ministry, widespread revival will not happen. This reality, however, as I said this morning, is not an excuse for us. It's not an excuse to be spiritually indifferent or lethargic on our part as an individual believer or as a local church body. The Lord God is still in the business of changing lives. He's still in the business of building His church. He's still in the business of pouring out His Spirit on those that humble themselves and seek His face. If we are guilty of the attitude we see here in the book of Jeremiah from these Jewish examples, if we're guilty of that, if we're guilty of having a man-centered attitude concerning God and the work of the Gospel in the church, if we're guilty of these things, of compromising, of being part of the religion of churchianity, we just need to humble ourselves and repent. It's that simple. Simple. We need to humble ourselves corporately as a church body. We need to humble ourselves individually. Recognize the problem and repent. What is, to, what is it to repent? It's to acknowledge that we are wrong. In the book of Jeremiah, if you go back to chapter 4, to me this is one of the simplest and most clear definitions. Uh, it's actually chapter 3 of repentance in the entire Bible. The Bible commands us to repent. Jesus Christ said, except you repent, you will all perish. Peter the Apostle preached in the book of Acts, repent and be converted. There is no salvation without repentance, my friends. Paul defines salvation as repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, without repenting and acknowledging your sins, you can't possibly understand and appreciate what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Because if you think you don't need to repent, if you think you're without sin, why would you need Jesus? A gospel devoid of repentance is no gospel, by the way. Re Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 13. In the midst of all this preaching that the prophet did, he preached all this hard preaching all his life. He was the weeping prophet. He also wrote the book of Lamentations. All of the things he warned, 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 warned came to pass. No one listened. Maybe a few did. He had a scribe, Baruch, that helped him for a time. You saw the Ethiopian eunuch there in those chapters we referenced earlier came to his aid. Few people might have listened here and there, but by and large, everyone that he preached to rejected his preaching. And he spent his life alone. God honored him and blessed him and took care of his needs, and I'm sure his reward is great in the kingdom of God. But no one ever listened, yet he was faithful. And here in chapter 3, his message to the people is the same as it was in those later chapters. You know, a man of God called to preach the Word of God, you can know him over a long period of years if his message has remained consistent. You know, there are great men of God, or supposedly great men of God that we revere and respect, that preach one thing at one time, but now they change their message. Something's wrong with that. A man of God called by God has a consistent message throughout his entire ministry. Those that go back and forth, we need to be careful about that. The Bible talks about them being like waves in the sea tossed about, double-minded men. But anyway, this prophet's message was always consistent. And here in verses 13 and 14, I believe he defines repentance for us. He tells the people of Israel, Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, 
and has scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed the voice, my voice, saith the Lord. In other words, acknowledge your sin. And then verse 14, turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Repentance. Acknowledge. Turn. It's that simple. What is repentance? If we're guilty of these things that I've talked about tonight in our lives, if we as a corporate church body are guilty of these things, then we need to, number one, acknowledge it, quit making excuses, and then turn from it. It's that simple. Repentance toward God is acknowledging our sin, that He is right, we are wrong, we deserve His judgment, and then turn from serving sin and turn toward God. That's repentance. It's not making penance. It's not going to the altar. It's not going to a priest and confessing your sins. It's not doing some kind of puja or ritual that we see done in man-made religion. It's acknowledging and turning. That's repentance. And when we acknowledge our sin and turn from it, the Lord says, He will use us. The Lord says, He will use us for His glory. So, tonight... As we think about these things and this week as we talk more about revival and things that necessarily happen when real revival takes place, let's be a people that acknowledges our sin and repents. If we're guilty of these things that have brought about the spirit of the age, let's acknowledge it and turn from it. We begin by we can do these things or begin to do these things by acknowledging the context in which we live, apostate times, rejecting the spirit of the age. Great revival may not come in our lifetime. We may never see this nation awaken back to the Word of God and to the things of God. We may, may never even experience revival uh, in the ways that people did during the Great Awakenings. But I can promise you one thing. God's not done with revival and awakening in human history. The Bible tells us that there's a great awakening coming. I don't believe the church will be here. I've been preaching through the book of Revelation when I'm in the country with a local church back in Catawba County, North Carolina. All of those messages are online if you're ever interested to hear. I believe it's been 52 messages. And when I get back in a couple weeks, I'll resume where I left off, chapter 9. So 52 messages from Revelation 1 through chapter 8. And there's 22 chapters in the book. So we've got a ways to go. But we're endeavoring to go through this book word by word and see what the Lord has to say and interpret it in light of the rest of Scripture. And so it's been interesting as we got into Revelation 7 that we see after the rapture of the church during the tribulation when everything is going to hell in a handbasket per se. God has some witnesses that He's sealed and ordained. 144,000 witnesses. Jewish witnesses. 12,000 from each tribe. That in those days, He will seal and they will go forth. And as you continue to read in chapter 7, after John sees those witnesses, it says he sees a great multitude of Gentiles out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, these witnesses will be sealed of God in a period of trial and tribulation that the world has never seen heretofore. And the fruit of their ministry won't be platforms. It won't be strategies. It won't be mission budgets. It'll be people. And those people will be an innumerable multitude that John saw from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. 
That's the great awakening that will one day happen. And the church will be on the sidelines. You see, the church is going here. It started at Pentecost when several thousand souls were added to the church in that one day. It ends with Laodicean lukewarmness. In a sense, the rapture, a glorious thing, praise God, the blessed hope of believer. In a sense, it's also the sin unto death for the church. Because it signifies that God is done with the church. He takes them out. Rest. And then He turns back to Israel and raises them up. So the last great awakening is yet to come. And it won't be us preaching that revival. It'll be Jewish people that don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah right now. But when they do and God seals them, there will be an awakening that will trump any of these awakenings that I've already mentioned from history. And a numerable number of tribulation saints will come to Christ in a day when horrible things are happening. So it's coming. We can be grateful for that. And what we do now in these dark days may be sowing seeds for that coming revival. That's why I have such a love for Jewish ministry today. Especially with young Israelis that get out of the Israeli army. Every young person is required to do two years of service in the Israeli army. And usually after they complete their service, the cultural thing for them to do is to travel the world. A lot of times they'll travel with the people that they worked with in the army. And they travel around the world and go to places and smoke a lot of dope and get into all kinds of trouble and try to get it all out of their system before they come back to Israel and are encouraged to get a job and have a career and all the things we think will bring us happiness here in America. Same thing, same heart that we all have. Notwithstanding, I find that a lot of these young people are open when they get outside of Israel. They're open to hear things from the Scriptures that they may not be willing to hear within their own society. And I find it interesting to witness to these young people and to see them open. And I think often in the back of my mind, you know, these young people may not get saved before Christ raptures His church, but maybe these people we're sharing with now are some of those that God is going to seal. Some of those 144,000 witnesses that will be the last revival preachers to bring about the last great awakening before Christ came. Maybe that's why we're sowing seeds today and they'll bear fruit later. So we just have a lot of fun with that because we know what God's going to do. He's already revealed it. And it's an amazing thing to be a part of that. We may not see revival like the Whitfields and the Wesleys and the Edwards did in the early days of America, but there is one coming. I hope I'm not here for it. I know I won't be here for it as a believer because Christ is coming to rapture His church and I look forward to that day. And I hope it's today. But if it's not, we must occupy until He comes. As I said this morning, there were those in Israel in the old days that had understanding of the times, it says. And understanding the times, they knew what Israel should, have, should be doing, the people of Issachar. We need to be those that understand the times, and know what we ought to do for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. What is it we ought to do? We ought to do what God tells us to do. It's that simple. What is it that these Jews should have done in Jeremiah 42? They should have done what God told them to do. Stay in, stay in Israel, don't go back to Egypt. What has God told us to do? He's told us to love one another, to preach the gospel to the lost, to grow in the image of Christ, to seek revival in our own hearts, in our own local churches, despite the fact that everything around us is plummeting straight to hell after the manner of biblical prophecy. That's what we're supposed to do. It's that simple. So tonight... 
as we close out, I just want you to think about this context in which we live. Think about whether or not we have been an accomplice to these things. And if we have, let's acknowledge it. Let's repent. And let's move forward. And may God bring revival in our lives and in our church. And everything that's happened around us is going to happen because it's been prophesied. And we can be okay with that because our trust is in the Lord and not with men. Tomorrow night we'll talk about some principles of revival and I'll finish out the week with those things. So, preacher.